Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Well, hey, Pastor. Hey, Dr. Robin. How are you? I'm good. I've got shorts on today recording. You've got shorts on. I'm glad, I'm glad you're at least wearing pants. <laughs> I mean, Which normally, normally I just recorded my underwear and tank, you know. I, I mean, I, I know your life. Um, yeah. I do know you uh, some days better than I wish I did. But yes, yeah. I'm, I'm proud of you that you've got shorts on. <laughs> and, and I feel so renewed this week after coming to Hamilton County to spend your birthday with you. You did. You and your partner made the drive from Nashville and came to spend my birthday with myself and my partner. And um, it was it was so much fun. Um, the parts of it that we can remember. Um, oh, I remember. It, it, all of it. <laughs> well, OK, maybe the parts that you that you remember or the parts that I remember, because there are some parts that I didn't remember when I woke up the next morning and there was one of our other friends on my deck saying, Hey, are you awake yet? And I've been here for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. She said, I've been here for 20 minutes. And I thought, why in the hell are you here? What, what am I missing? Like why? you had, you had <laughs> promised breakfast. I know. Apparently I had and and everyone remembered except for me. <laughs> <laughs> but what um, a great time. I mean, it really was, I mean, you're a wonderful human every day of the year, but no, to have, great. To have a day to celebrate you and to drink bourbon with you on the deck. It was such a beautiful night, too. And Claire and Shannon came over and it really just, it it really did wonders um, for me. Yeah, same for me. And you got to go to the dog park, which is one of your favorite places to hang out when you're in town in Chattanooga with with me. Um, My dog, Ruthie, goes to this really amazing dog park in Chattanooga that... Um, it's claim to fame is that it also has beer on draft. So the the dogs play and the humans drink beer and watch the dogs play. And I firmly believe that if if there is a heaven, um, it that's looks, what it looks like. It looks a lot like that dog park. Yeah. The only the only thing that dog park needs in addition to what it already has is like a taco truck outside. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> like, because yeah. you know, I mean, I can sustain myself on beer for a while, but not like days on end and so maybe we should um, do a taco truck then right maybe in all of our free time in all of our free time we'll just park it outside the dog park but Um, the the beauty of that evening was not only the bourbon and ginger but the hamburgers that we had from tree mile I know. It's so... I love their hamburgers. If y'all know Chattanooga, Tennessee, you know that Tremont Tavern is one of the best... It's, I mean, it's, it's voted the best burger in town consistently. Um, if you don't know Chattanooga, but you're passing through, um, look it Stop up on your Tremont. way through. 
stop at Tremont. It's really, it's, they've got the best burgers in all of the land. And um, in December, you can get the duck bacon <laughs> burger, which I really love. Yes. It's duck the halls. Oh, duck the halls. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, which is the December burger of the month. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So um, uh, one more interesting thing to share, in addition to just thanking you for, you know, being with me on my birthday. Um, so, you know, I've talked a lot over the last couple of weeks about um, the work that the organizers here in Chattanooga have been trying to do to, um, you know, to get our, our, our city council to divest and yeah. to um, kind of, you know, make some actionable change. Um, in a really uh, tokenist and performative act, yesterday they decided to name racism as a public health crisis in the city of Chattanooga, um, but just decided to do it in word only and didn't put a single dollar behind the action. I mean, it, it's like it, 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 it pissed us off so bad. I'm like, you know, all we have asked from you is to meet with us, to delay right. the budget adoption, to, to talk with us critically about how we can do this work, um, you know, in a more authentic and intentional way. And three of the council people who voted, who denied our request to delay the budget vote for one week were the three that decided to put this resolution in front of the council um, to just simply name that racism is a is a, a public crisis. And um, and they and they and they walked away with patting themselves on the back. Like, can you fucking believe that? I, I was just like, yeah, you've got I mean, to be kidding me. I mean, I mean, unfortunately, I can't believe it. Right. Well, because. Because the story and stories that we are telling ourselves is that if we do this in name only, it will make a difference or right. it will change something, right? And and we're all shaped by stories, as we all know. Right. So the more that we can get people to believe that as long as we name it, then that 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 a racist or that yeah that's enough that satisfies uh, people yeah um but really the the work is to understand how we are shaped by this pervasive story right and unhinge from that story and tell a narrative that actually creates folds of liberation which people aren't ready to do and engages action with right. the story, like right. the story, even if we unhinge and even if we find a way to to divest ourselves from the simplistic story that we feel like is getting ourselves by and allowing us to pat ourselves on the back now, a, a new story must be fused with, you know, action and mm -hmm. and liberative work otherwise right. it's you know it's it's once again just performative and yeah. and you know a, a tokenization of of harm that that just you know just just won't stop right so yeah that was my like i literally like almost vomited on my keyboard last night when i was watching the city council do this nonsense it. well like our city council up here in nashville um they adopted uh, a budget that is going to give millions to the police force. Yay. And also raise taxes, you know? And of so course. 
So we're battling the same thing. But I, I do want to say um, two things. One is when we were down there in Chattanooga, um, after we drove around before we went to Milk and Honey, which, by the way, great recommendation, <laughs> really good food. I had the chorizo burrito, really good. Um, we drove um, across the Black Lives Matter street. Yeah. And so we got to see some of your work there. And yeah. then the other thing I just want to say is that we really need to be thinking of our teachers because mm. um, Aaron and I got a text from Claire and Shannon yesterday because I was just inquiring, like, what's the, what does it look like for y'all going back to school? And Claire said, you know, the mayor ma mandated masks mm -hmm. except for schools and they're right. all going back. They're all going back to school on August 12th. And so I really feel concerned about, you know, we, we already don't um, pay our teachers what they, what they deserve. And now we're asking them to put their life at risk. And so yes. I just, you know, I'm like, what do we need to do? What kind of pressure do we need to put on the school systems to, to actually not endanger our teachers and our children? And this is happening all across the country. I mean, all you know, across the country. Our, our, our cities are not the only ones that are having these tough conversations. And, and to be honest, even cities with the most liberal or progressive of politics are struggling to figure out this challenge. Um, because, you know, parents, rightfully so, don't know how they're going to go back to work. Right. If their children don't go back to school. And yet, if, if, if there is not a real intentional way that we create, um, you know, structures of safety for our teachers and for our kids, I mean, this, this disease is going to continue to, to ravage our, our communities right. Right. And, 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 and affect a, a, a radically vulnerable population in our youth. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the world, friend. I mean, yeah. We could, we could do this for days and still yeah. not get to it all. But I think we should invite folks to welcome our guest today. Yeah. So we are really, really lucky in that um, Matt Nightingale has agreed to be with us today on the podcast. Um, Matt is... He's taking um, a big risk because who knows what's going to happen. Is. You know, you never know. Um, he is an evangelical pastor. Um, he may call himself post-evangelical at this point, but I, I think he, what I know about him, he's probably still sits kind of in, in the in the in-between. Um, does a lot of um, spiritual directing work, a lot of pastoring still, but um, came out, um, you know, a, a couple of dozen years into his marriage um, and now fully and authentically lives as a gay Christian man and, and does the work of um, queering the church and, you know, helping those who are in the midst of this conversation around sexuality and Christianity kind of identify what's next for them. Yeah. And we're really thrilled that he's here. Matt, you are a brave, brave, brave soul. We're glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here too. <laughs> yeah, I have to say when when I was putting out on Twitter um, who should come onto our podcast, someone tagged Matt. So 
we just started a conversation and um, exchanged phone numbers and texted back and forth a little bit. And now here we are on the podcast. I love it. Yeah, I love Twitter. Twitter is an amazing way to get connected with all kinds of people. Yeah, it, yes. It's been an absolute uh, life changer for me, honestly, over, yeah. over the last maybe decade. Well, Matt, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit more about you? Um, feel free to correct anything that I that I said that might not fully jive with with who you believe you are. Um, and, and just let just let folks know um, what they should know about you as we start this conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. E- evangelical. I don't I don't think that's a word that I would use to describe myself. Perfect. <laughs> um, but I am still a Christian. I, I still yeah. I talk about um kind of the ways that even as I tried to let go of Christianity in some ways, I always felt like Jesus wouldn't let me go. Mm. So it was kind of like this, uh, this has been my path, my spiritual path since I was literally a baby and to walk away from, from this way that has been really powerful in my life. Uh, ha- has proven to be impossible. Mm. <laughs> Even when I tried, I felt right. like Jesus <laughs> was always there and and kind of wouldn't let me go. So I, I have kind of come back to embracing that and, and leaning into it. Um, yeah, I, I'm co-pastor of a progressive American Baptist church in Marin County, California called mm. The Quest. And um, I've been co-pastor along with my best friend of 20 years, Tony Gapistone, uh, for about a year. Before that, I was um, music minister there for a year and a half. So that's been quite an interesting thing. Um, before I came out in 2016, I was uh, in the Evangelical Covenant denomination for 16 years. Mm, and I was right. a full-time credentialed pastor. Um, I lived in Redwood City, California. I lived in Seattle, Houston, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and then finally here in Santa Rosa, California, um, moved here in 2013 with my then wife of 23 years. And, uh, we have four children together. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, after a very, very long process, and this is a huge long story, but in 2016 decided to come out fully, um, which, which meant also leaving my marriage which meant um, resigning from the Evangelical Covenant denomination and from my church. Um, And so, yeah, the last four years, (laughs) and it's only been four years, which kind of blows my mind sometimes, but the last four years has been all about uh, kind of living into this new life Mm -hmm. and in some pretty amazing ways, um, being able to tell this story, being able to help other people. I find myself at this intersection of spirituality and sexuality. So I, I, in, in all of the places that I find myself, I'm always helping Christians, usually more conservative Christians, understand a little bit more about queer people. And then I find myself in kind of queer circles, helping people to get connected with God mm. and, and understand that they absolutely don't have to walk away from faith mm. in order to live authentically as uh, an LGBTQ plus person. Yeah. So, and then I, I'll say just one more thing. I think the thing that most people maybe find me because of or, or know me from is a TED talk that I gave with my former wife back in 2016, 
And it was about our mixed orientation marriage, about um, my years of conversion therapy attempts. Um, and, and then kind of over time, over a very long time, both of us uh, becoming more progressive in our understanding of God and, and faith and sexuality and of our decision finally to end our marriage, trying to focus on gratitude for all those years together and all the good, including our four amazing children. And then looking at the future with hope for what could possibly be next, what might actually be better and more life-giving as the result of moving forward in authentic ways. And so I find myself doing a lot of work with gay people who, for whatever reason, find themselves in marriages to opposite sex partners and are trying to find out, we're trying to figure out what, what now, what next, how can I be authentically uh, true to my sexuality? And also what do I do in, in this marriage? Do I stay? Do I go? Um, and I, and I find myself doing a lot of support for people in those kinds of circumstances. So we've actually had a fair amount of queer folks on our podcast, but we have not really had this conversation, which is how do we have a process? How do we have a relational process? How do we honor relationship um, and honor who we understand ourselves to be? Can you talk a little bit about that process and because what I hear is a kind of conscious uncoupling that mm, was yeah. also infused with your spirituality and your and your evolving process with God. Can you just share a little bit, whatever you feel comfortable with um, telling us a, a little bit about that process? Sure. Um, so just right up front, I, I always want to be clear that the decision, the actual decision to divorce was my decision alone. And my former wife, Luann, after having spent all those years with me, um, wanted our marriage to continue and would have chosen to stay. And so that's, that's just important. And I always want to honor her by acknowledging that it was my choice to end the marriage. And I, I never speak on her behalf either, obviously, mm -hmm. but, um, right. And so she would have chosen to stay with you as a, as a gay man. Yes. Okay. Yes. I just wanted to make sure I, I understood kind of her, uh, kind of where she was at that, at that point in, in, in your, in your understandings of one another. Yeah. So we, we got married in 1993 and, you know, we came from like fundamentalist Christianity mm. in, I had grown up in Northern Indiana in a very, very tiny kind of fundamentalist sect, uh, and then went to college in that same kind of space. <laughs> and my wife was from Southern California, but had also been raised in that same very fundamentalist Christian world. And so, you know, in that space, in the early nineties in Northern Indiana, <laughs> all of our friends were like getting married and having babies. Yeah. It's just what you yeah. do. And so, um, I did the same. I knew I was gay, uh, yeah. at 10 years old but had just chosen very consciously to bury that and deny it because in my world, in my very limited understanding of reality, there was no healthy queer people. <laughs> there was no, there was no model of like a spiritual gay person. It just didn't exist. Right. And so, you know, I chose to really bury that and go deeply into the closet. 
Um, and it wasn't really I, when I got married in 1993, it wasn't kind of with any malicious or, or harmful intent at all. It was really just, gosh, I want to do the right thing. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to be in ministry. I want to have kids. I want to have a wife. I want to do the right thing for a good Christian boy to do. (laughs) So, so yeah, we got married, um, and began to have children. Um, and it was eight years in, in 2001 that I came out for the first time to her and to uh, trusted friends in our faith community. And at the time, I wasn't coming out in 2001 to come out and to live authentically. I was coming out to get healed and fixed. And that was kind of at the height of kind of all of this ex-gay bullshit that, <laughs> that was kind of, it was everywhere. I mean, I remember seeing people, you know, in national magazines talking about, I used to be gay and now God has delivered me. And, <laughs> And I, yeah. I believed, I really did. I was so yeah. earnest and sincere and I really wanted that. And so I took this huge risk of coming out and being vulnerable, hoping that, that I could be changed, that I could be fixed and healed. And so that led into, gosh, eight, nine years of uh, all kinds of self-help, uh, you know, counseling, therapy, ex-gay stuff, um, support groups, 12-step work. Um, so so earnest and sincere, sincerely trying to surrender this to God and, and deal with it in, a, in the way that I understood to be true. Um, and so we stayed together for 15 years beyond that initial coming out. Mm. And so if you can imagine the, and, and it wasn't like, I, I often say it wasn't all bad. You know, I hear men who have come out of situations like mine often talking about kind of the the horror stories of what that was like for all those years, you know, and that, and that's just frankly, not my story. Um, we had such, such love and respect for each other. We tried so very hard and we, we kind of grew this beautiful family and this, this kind of life together. And so for me, even it was incredibly difficult to imagine taking that apart. It was really, really scary and hard and I didn't want to hurt anybody. Um, I'm the kind of, I won't step on a spider, you know, I just, I don't want to hurt anybody ever. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that I could somehow um, hurt my children, hurt my wife, um, hurt the faith community that we were a part of, all these people who for 15 years had surrounded me with, honestly, like their best intentioned love, you know, their their best intentioned care. and so, yeah, it, w- it was a very, very long and difficult process. I will say that uh, from that initial coming out in 2001, I was always very, very honest and upfront with Luann throughout those, th- the rest of that 15 years. And so she was like, had a front row seat to mm-hmm. this huge deconstruction of my understanding of God and sexuality. And so it wasn't like it was a shock or a surprise when finally in 2016, I said, I have to do this. I yeah. have to make a change, but it was still difficult, you know, and it wasn't like she was kicking and screaming and fighting against it. Not at all. She has been unbelievably understanding. She's right where I am theologically. <laughs> she, she gets it deeply, but she didn't for her own self. She did not want a divorce. She didn't right. want to end a marriage. She entered that marriage fully intending to be in it forever. Yeah. You know, and so this was, and, and then especially to have stayed with a gay man for 15 years, that's a lot of sacrifice on her part yeah. and, and a lot of investment, frankly. 
And so to have that investment kind of turn out this way was certainly not what she was hoping for. So, um, but yes, I, I, I decided again through a, a very long process, right? But I decided for myself, even for her, I hope and pray still to this day and for our children and for our community and for the world around us that, that to live authentically, to give all of us in this story, the possibility of living in a happy and healthy way in congruence with reality. Uh, I, I really had hope and I still do that that will be the ending, the good ending of this story. Mm -hmm. And that's what gave me ultimately the courage to say, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this decision. You know, Anna, I think a lot of people are probably wondering why, why are we having this kind of conversation if our work is around social activism? But as we've been talking, the inner work is just as important as the external work. And what I hear in Matt's story is a deep commitment to the inner work and alignment with values right which is which is a lot of the work that we're doing right now it is you know i think that i, I think so often we we look at others and the work they're doing in the world and think of and we assume that they have arrived to that space very quickly we assume that they have um that they're you know that that they you know came you know, head first out of the womb with yeah. an activist center or yeah. with a, an understanding of their self so deeply ingrained that they, that this work is just innate to them and that there's, there, there hasn't been a, a long standing kind of churning within them that has finally gotten them to where they are. Right. I mean, I, you know, I have said often, I, you know, yes, I have been, I have been a queer advocates and and have been you know in support of of and, and vocally in support of um e equal rights and 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 a and a removal of all barriers you know since i was in my early 20s right um but when it comes to supremacy and and this un and and understandings of the patriarchy and understandings of you know misogyny and 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 colonialization i mean i I could have just as easily turned out totally different. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, I have arrived, I, I did not arrive here um, without a, a radical amount of work. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and I did not arrive quickly. Um, right. You know, I, it, it has taken the majority of my 47 years to get me to this place where um, I, I, you know, where people see me. And I think, you know, Matt, that's what you're reinforcing to a lot of the folks, you know, that are, that are listening today is that there, there is not, um, you know, there are not single moments that, that determine, you know, who you are and where you end up. Um, a lot of this deep internal, self-work is going on within us for, for many, many, many years. And yes, yeah, sure. Sometimes there is a single moment that we can identify when the mm -hmm. switch finally clicked for us, or when we finally said, okay, enough is enough. But, but those things don't happen without, you know, a lot of, a lot of work on our, on ourselves um, over, over a period of time. And I'm, I'm just, I'm glad that you, 
have informed that for us. And you have, mm. you have expounded on that in a way that I think a lot of, a lot of the people um, that listen to this podcast can, can relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just really grateful for, for the process. You know, I, I sure. look at my life now and yes, you're absolutely right. I, I don't think I've somehow arrived. Believe me. I've, I feel like I'm, constantly learning. I mean, every mm-hmm. single day I'm learning and growing what it means to be an activist, to, to, to learn what it means to be an ally uh, in real ways, you know, and, and I'm so grateful for the patience of, of people with me over the years. Uh, and I'm so grateful for the pioneers who've gone before me. I, I, I jokingly say, but I really mean it actually, I, I've been doing a lot of like Queer 101, you know, ever since coming out of the closet. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, sure. I am trying to watch documentaries about Stonewall. You know, I'm trying to le- just learn some of these very basic things about our queer community that so many people know and have been living for literally decades. Yeah. And, and here I am, 48 years old, still like this baby in so many ways, but really trying to, to learn and grow and to listen. Man, if I could say one word that has that has been so important to me over the last four years is just listen, be quiet and listen. Um, and, and that has helped me so much to grow. And I, th- and I hope to help other people, you know, as I listen, as I learn to continue to kind of pass that on in the different areas in which I have influence. Well, you talk, you know, you say that, you know, in the last four years, you've, you know, you finally started to, to pay attention to some of the things that, um, you know, you feel like people have been learning for decades. Yeah. And yet you also said that you knew from the time you were 10 <laughs> that you were gay. Right. And so 38 years, you have actually lived, um, you, you, have, you have identified and you have lived a, a life that has informed everything that has gotten you to this point. Yeah. Um, and and it, it would seem to me, and, and, and correct me if these words aren't uh, don't resonate, but it would seem to me as if it was four years ago when you finally gave yourself permission to learn the things yes. that you that you were yes. seeking to, or you might have desired to have learned yes. for many years before that. Um, you you permitted yourself both because of um, you know coming out to everyone and all at that moment, but also in saying you know I'm no longer a married man. I'm no yeah. longer. Um, you know, a, 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 a gay man living as a, a straight married man or living right. as in, in other people's eyes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's that permission granting that allows us to unhinge from yeah. this, these things that have coupled us to, to, to barriers and to weights for so long. Oh man, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's being free from that kind of, um, that costume that I wore every day for all those years uh, has allowed me to explore things that I never ever could have before or, or wouldn't allow myself to, you know? And then I think the other piece, which is equally important is the fact that I'm no longer a credentialed minister in a non-affirming denomination, you know? And for all those years, I mean, I feel like, yeah, I feel like all those years, I could never be honest about my actual theological questions. You know, mm. I, I might have those side conversations with trusted friends because I, I, even in, I mean, every church I was was ever serving, I would always kind of find the subversively uh, interesting <laughs> little pocket of people that I could deal right. with, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But I never, like as a, 
as a credentialed minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church of America, I could never speak freely and I could never explore publicly, you know? And so like in all my social media, in any um, public ministry setting a role, I I always had to perform. I always had to uh, toe the party line, you know? And so I think to be free from that as, as terrifying as it was, frankly, because it cut me off from a 20 year career and I had absolutely no idea how I was going to even pay my bills, (laughs) you know, the, the, the following month. But despite that fear and financial insecurity, the freedom that it gave me to just, to just ask questions and to learn and to do that publicly, it was unbelievable. It was, it was an absolute emancipation for me uh, in so many ways, spiritually, intellectually, to be able to explore and to be able to be open about that exploration. Mm. I love it. Let's talk about the church for a few yeah. minutes. Um, if you're, if you're willing to go there with me, I mean, you know, I, um, you know, uh, uh, about my story, um, and about my firing from the United Methodist Church for, yeah. you know, presiding over a same sex wedding. Um, and, you know, although the United Methodist denomination is historically, you know, progressive in, in many aspects, um, you know, our inability to get out of our own way as it relates mm. to, you know, issues of queer ordination and the support of churches and pastors to honor, um, you know, queer marriage and, and, and partnership in, from a legal standpoint is it just, it's, we just, we just can't get our heads out of our asses. Right. Um, but, but what that, what that speaks to, um, as we all know, is, is the, the, the chains that evangelicalism has placed on denominational values and constructs. And, you know, and, and we have permitted this understanding of, you know, biblical literacy, mm-hmm. um, biblical, um, you know, inerrancy, um, and, and our understanding of, of, what we think the the church has has been trying to say over the last forty years to cloud our vision as it relates to you know the the work that we should be doing in the world. How have you found the the work of the church to either have lifted you in this through this journey or to to, to continue to be a barrier to um, what you think? you know, we as Christians need to be doing in order to shift the narrative as it relates to, to queer people in the church and, and their belovedness um, before God. Yeah, I, I relate to so much of what you just said. Uh, in fact, my, my grandpa was a United Methodist minister, and I have uh, an uncle and an aunt who are United Methodist ministers. I have a lot of history with that denomination. Uh, and then when I was very young, my family moved to a free Methodist church because my mom and dad had had these kind of like evangelical uh, born again experiences and were afraid that kind of the more liberal United Methodist church would not be good for our family. So we went into free Methodism and then we went into an even more uh, kind of fundamentalist church called the Grace Brethren Church. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I found myself in early adulthood and in college, you know, in that world. And and. In many ways, I believed it to be true. I was like all about inerrancy and um, yeah, and, and that was very kind of like politically right wing as well. And I was just all in, you know, in my mm-hmm. very early adulthood. Um, 
But then, you know, thank God, I, I was always exploring. I was always questioning and doubting. Um, even in high school, you know, I would hear these kind of Calvinist perspectives on reality and just go, that is messed up. Like if, if God is really like that, I don't think I can worship that God. That is not cool. And so I was always kind of like questioning and, and um, kind of seeking broader theological understanding, I guess. Um, and I was really, I, I just kind of stumbled into the evangelical covenant church. And for me at the time, it was amazingly diverse and beautiful and progressive. And they had been ordaining women for 40 years at that point. And that was, that was new to me. And it, and it was difficult at first, but I quickly be, em, learned to embrace it and, and, and see such incredible value in these powerful women preachers, you know, it just like, that was one of the life changing things for me. And then this denomination was also not at all afraid to say black lives matter. And they were, they were very uh, intentional in their multi-ethnic um, experiences. And, and that to me was also just very eye opening and beautiful and good and challenging and, and provocative. And, and I really was so grateful for that. Um, but man, when it comes to the gay thing, they just, oh yeah. I mean, the door slammed shut. I follow that story. Yeah. Yeah. It's been wild. And, and I was kind of like one of the kind of underground people pushing for change, trying to, uh, trying to help our denomination to become more affirming of queer people. Um, even before I was out of the closet, you know, I was, I was the closeted gay man trying to be the, you know, straight ally or whatever. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, there came a point obviously for me, where I just could not continue on in that space and be truthful about who I was. They were great to me in many ways, as long as I was um, following the rules, you know, as long as I was staying in my marriage, as long as I was not, quote unquote, embracing my sexuality, as long as I was finding my identity in Christ, you know, but, but the minute I was kind of finally convinced inside myself and ready to move into a more authentic way of being in the world. I knew that I couldn't be a part of that anymore. And I didn't want to force them into, I could have kind of done, probably this would have been, I I don't know what would have been more helpful, frankly, but I chose rather than make them fire me, I resigned my credentials because I wanted to continue to have, I guess, the ability to speak into um, those relationships that I had built up over 20 years. I wanted to maintain those relationships and, and try to be able to speak truth into those spaces as yeah. I was coming out, as I was beginning to live authentically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really interesting. I mean, church is, is, uh, quite an institution and quite a thing. <laughs> we, I, I was very fortunate very early on to discover this amazing human being named Annie Steinberg Behrman. And she is the senior pastor of the uh, Metropolitan Community Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And she had lived a very similar story to mine about 20 years ahead of me. Um, and I was so blessed to meet her and she became this amazing guide and uh, kind of coming out coach almost for me um, or midwife, you know, and she, she was just with me as I went through this. And it was so encouraging to, to see someone who had navigated these waters ahead of me. Um, and so she hired me at the MCC San Francisco to be their music director. And, and I worked there for about nine months and you want to talk about like night and day. It was like, it was oh, jarring. Yeah. It was, it was, it was actually pretty difficult in some ways and it was wonderful in other ways, but to go from this, you know, very evangelical 
uh, space where there are very clearly defined boundaries and lines and you don't cross these things to a super queer, sex positive, uh, historically gay, you know, San Francisco, yeah. almost, almost multi-faith environment, you know, just like from, it, it was, it was night and day. Um, and, and for me, it was almost a little too much, frankly, at the time, I didn't quite know what to do with myself, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, not to get too far into the story, but where I find myself today is in such a, a sweet space. And, and it's an amazing story because it was my ex-wife who, who, uh, first introduced me to the then pastor of the church where I now pastor. And, um, and so I, I began to, uh, lead worship for them and, and it's a mostly straight space. Um, it's just a small, funky little, I call it an evangelical-ish church because it kind of feels like an evangelical church in the way that we worship. And, um, but, but it's very, very progressive theologically. And I can actually say the things that are true about me and, and even about my, um, not only about my queerness, but about my theological musings and wonderings and to be able to be, uh, a, co-pastor in a church and stand up in front of my congregation and say, is there a God? I, I don't know. <laughs> do you know how freeing that is? Yeah, um, right. I live as if there's a God. And I do believe most days, I do believe that there is a God. And I believe that this path of Christianity that has always been my path has, has been incredibly helpful for me to, uh, to, ex to experience the divine, you know? And so, but, but I love that I can voice these things honestly, and I don't have to filter them. I'm not, in, I'm not afraid of losing my job. My financial, uh, security is not tied into my theological beliefs anymore. And that is such an amazing space. And it's very rare to find a, a church position where that is the case, Correct. you know? So I'm very, very grateful. It's so funny that you just, you mentioned that you know the the church would have your 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 previous denomination would have you know been fine if you had just like kept quiet and towed the line and not yeah. you know not done what you know not uh, acted on your you know sexual desires as as some of them would say. Right. I have I have a dear friend in the United Methodist Church who was going to seek ordination, and he's a you know, openly gay man who has a partner and um, mm. they have since married. And um, he was told by uh, a mentor uh, elder in the United Methodist Church when that he was going to be asked, you know, um, so you're gay, but are you practicing <laughs> um, uh, as, as a gay man? Um, and that his answer should be, um, no, I don't have to practice anymore. I'm good right. enough. I'm as really a, good, I'm at good it. enough now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that term. A because they would homosexual. Have, yeah. Are you a practicing homosexual? Because yeah. they would have ordained him or would have allowed him to enter the ordination track mm. if he had, if he had identified himself as celibate. Right. Um, yes. But you know, it's, it, it's just, it's still so bizarre to me. This, um, these worlds that we are seeing, kind of manifest in denominational politics before our eyes and yeah. and are still having to watch our our friends and our and our siblings be subjected to the harm that's being caused. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I I I think because I was in that world for so so long and because because for many of those years I myself believed those things to be true. I I have um I have at least um an understanding of and kind of a 
I don't know, empathy for people who are still there, you know, because yeah. I, I was there too. And it took a very long time for me to, to find my way to the space where I am now. Um, but I think one of the things, so, so I, I find myself at that intersection a lot, frankly, kind of like, um, I, I, I don't, it's hard. Hmm. I, I don't want to castigate. I don't want to condemn people who are still in that space. Um, like authentically, like they, they sincerely believe these things to be true. But um, I have learned that even if you hold something sincerely that is harming other people, right? Intention doesn't negate impact. And that's one of the things right. I've had to learn, right. frankly, over the years, because, because I always appealed to people's good intentions and I couldn't understand what was wrong with that. Frankly, that's right. one of my, that's one of the things I've really grown in over the last several years. Um, I would be like, but they're sincere. They're, they're not trying to hurt anybody, you know? And I remembered when I was in that space too. Um, and so I would kind of really give people a lot of grace, which is important in many ways. But I would sometimes negate the impact, right? I would minimize the ways that their sincerely held theology was still toxic and harmful. And I think I have learned over the years, that's one of, one of the things that I'm so grateful to have, to have learned and, and grateful for the people who have patiently taught me over the last years, that, that even if someone holds something very sincerely and they really believe they're doing the best they can, you know, uh, in God's eyes or whatever, if they're harming you, they're harming you. <laughs> that's, that's real. Right. That impact is real. And we have to work to, to stop that harm, you know? You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is when we have toxic theology, whatever it is, it shows up in our anthropology. Mm. Meaning, we not only have a toxic view of ourselves, but of one another, which is, which is why white supremacy, supremacy culture runs so rampant. The other thing I've been thinking about is something you said several minutes back, which you said the church is an institution. And I agree. And I wonder, what do we do with language, this language of evangelicalism and the language of Christian. Because, you know, in Latin America, people who are believers in the way of Jesus do not call themselves Christians. They call themselves evangelicals, evangelicals. And so is there a way for us to reclaim language in the midst of dismantling supremacy culture that points toward a following of the way mm. that doesn't capitulate to the institutionalization of Christianity. Mm. I just wonder. I wonder too. Uh, I, I think about, I think about my reluctance to let go of the language of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I, I wonder what, what's up with that. Right. And I, and I am trying yeah. to be honest about it and learn why is it that that language continues to uh continues to speak to me you know and maybe it's because i am white and cisgender and you know i've got these these very real um privileges in my life every day um well and you've been shaped by a story we all yeah we all have been shaped by this story for for good and mm -hmm. for ill right mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like I was talking about at the beginning, like I, I, 
I, I've, in some ways, I've tried to walk away from it, but it continues yeah. to captivate me, this story of Jesus and, and the story of the people of Jesus, right? Uh, and, and I see the tremendous good that has come into my life because of that story and because of those yeah. people. And I yeah. even have like, I, I continue to have kind of deep nostalgia and gratitude even for my previous life. I, there, there was a lot of good there and mm-hmm. I can, I just, I can't have like a, such a black and white, like everything before I was 44 years old was bad. That's not true. There was a lot of really beautiful and wonderful uh, and life-giving things in in that world and in that life, and it's hard for me to separate separate those things out. And I think yeah. living in that ambiguity is difficult, but it's for me anyway. It's honest, you know. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know what to do with that language of Christianity, and I, I I can say pretty clearly I'm not an evangelical. Like I, yeah, you know. But I, but but the language of of the the Christian religion, the Christian faith, continues to shape and mold me and and captivate me, frankly. You know, I wonder both both Matt and Robin, you know, I I see this, I see language as um a tool that we have we meaning white people mm. historically have used to romanticize concept. Mm. So we we select terms that are um that that we believe identify and and we romanticize those terms and those concepts in such a way that we make them palatable. We make them more accepting, mm-hmm. or we make them more um, uh, enticing. Right. And 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 I think for 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 a long time, you know, we romanticized this this understanding of Christian to a point where that romanticizing of the word forgive my bluntness, bastardized mm. the understanding of Jesus as fully human, um, brown, Palestinian, mm. Jewish mm-hmm. um, man who who really, you know, set out to teach us how how the world could change if we were to emulate right. the work, the work that he was trying to do in the world. Right. Um and we've done the same with with other language. I mean, you know, we for many years we romanticized, and still to this day we romanticize this understanding of whiteness. Mm-hmm. We romanticize this understanding of of um, you know of 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 capitalism, of mm-hmm. of, mo- of money, of of, mm-hmm. of wealth, right. and 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 we have we do it over and over again in a means by which we. Uh, want to soften the blow yeah. that those that that language has inflicted on people that aren't like us mm. that don't believe like us that that don't right. look like us that um and and I, I just i wonder if that if that resonates with you or if that's just a a thing that i like i'm i'm trying to work my own way through that understanding um and and robin as you were kind of saying that about um about you know being being Christian and and what what we should do about this you know our language, um that's that's what that's what's like front of my front of my brain right now. Well, we we not only romanticize this stuff, we also make idols mm-hmm. out of like capitalism. For oh, example, yeah. we worship we worship the all American U.S. dollar 
more so than honoring labor mm. right. for, you know. Um, so not only do we romanticize these things, but we make idols out of them too. And, mm. and that I think is, a th- that is a particular theological value that our culture holds mm. that is bad theology. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. And I'm thinking about, you know, just even the value of patriotism, right? We've certainly turned yeah. that into a, a God and worshiped it. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and that, that. And saw it on full display last week. Oh my gosh. Right. Absolutely. Yes. It's difficult. I, I think I, I was listening to one of these episodes. Uh, I can't remember which one it was exactly, but Anna, you were saying um, kind of, you have this, Oh, I think it was talking about defunding police. And you were talking about how you still sometimes hold on to this idea that you can redeem something, you know, that mm-hmm. maybe it could be changed and improved. And I think I also c- kind of continue to hold on to that hope for terms and language sometimes. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think of Christianity as always having this um, – the story of resurrection and redeeming, right? And, right. and you know, life comes from death and uh, beauty can come from ashes and hope can come from despair. And so I, I look at even the, the language of Christianity and think, can it be redeemed? I want to believe that it can. I want to believe that that language can be somehow resurrected in a beautiful, life-giving way. And I don't know if it can be, but that's a hope. You know, I think that's yeah. something that drives me. But can the institution? Right, right, right. I think, and I think we get caught up in saying that this concept and this understanding of Christianity um, must be um, entangled with the institution that yeah. has informed it. Mm-hmm. And I think it really is the institution that's doing the most harm. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not the language. It, it might be our understanding of the language, but it, our understanding of the language has come from the institution. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, true. Yeah, and, true. And that's, I think if we if we can unhinge those two things and recognize that the institution of the church, the capital C church, is what needs to be in some ways destroyed mm. and and leveled and and built up again in this you know acts to understanding of the church, mm. then then we have a better chance of redeeming the word Christian hmm. and the, and the concept of Christianity. Um, and that, and that's really, that's where I get, I get bound up in, in, you know, in theory and in um, our understanding of, of how one must interact with the other in order for us to, yeah. to understand it. So. Well, and we're conscripted into the language which means that we're conscripted into the institution. Mm. Right. <laughs> right. Right. That and so, unhinging will not come easily. Right. right. And so the unhinging, just just like Matt, you have had to unhinge from several things. Yeah. There becomes a reorientation, a type of queering, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and when we do that, we have a better chance of getting our hands dirty to to find the next best thing to the language into which we're conscripted. Yeah. So Matt, what is next for you? What's um what's what's coming what's 
what what does life look like for you as you move into this um, you know next chapter of um, you know being an openly gay man in the church um, an associate pastor are you are you working on anything new or are you are you doing anything that that we should be keeping an eye on? Well, yeah, I've always got many irons in the fire, you know, trying to, it's been wild. Uh, when I walked away from that world, I really had to kind of start building from scratch in many ways. Um, and I, I guess I, I, I had great plans for 2020. Let me tell you, I was going to start a nonprofit <laughs> and it's called common sanctuary. I actually did get the 501 C three. So I, I guess it exists in the world, but it was going to be a big launch year for that. What's that? You've done the hardest part. If you've yeah. dealt with the government in that, from that standpoint, you've done, you've done some of the hardest work. Right. I was, I was so excited. It was going to be this big launch and in, I, I haven't said anything about this, but in my day job, I'm a teacher full-time. I teach at a, a private school up here in Santa Rosa. So I was, I was looking to possibly quit teaching and really invest full time in my church ministry. And then in this nonprofit that really exists uh, to further the conversation um, related to queer spirituality. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I still continue to have dreams about that. I really feel like um, <laughs> I, I think there's a book inside of me at some point, kind of a memoir yes. that kind of tells the whole story, you know, um, but yes. also helps kind of people, um, work through their own understandings of sexuality and spirituality. Um, and I continue to do a lot of work. I'm, I'm really grateful for two organizations. One is called the Christian closet and that is, um, an online, um, mental and spiritual health, um, service. Uh, Candace Zubernot is the founder and she runs it. Um, and there's, um, licensed marriage and family therapists who work there, um, coaches, there's an Enneagram coach, and then I'm the spiritual director. So I do, and I also facilitate support groups, mostly for gay men who are married to women and who are kind of trying to figure out what's next for them. So I really, I feel like that's, that's the work that, that brings me great joy and satisfaction is walking alongside people who are kind of trying to uh, discern where is God in their story. Um, and I think my training as a spiritual director has been probably the most significant in, in that regard in terms of ministry. Um, I don't have answers for people. I cannot and will not tell them what to do, but I can be a companion to them as they uh, as they walk through this journey and as they seek God, I can seek God with them and help them to do that. And I try to be really open with my story, the, the painful things and the really wonderful things um, as I do that. Um, so I, I just try to be not a guide, but a companion and, and to be really open with my life. Because like I said earlier, I mean, we are all familiar with the rags to riches story or the, you know, I, my life used to be awful and now it's perfect. That's just not the case with me. Um, coming right. out has been the simultaneously one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me and one of the most difficult things that's ever happened to me. Um, these four years have been uh, joyful and peaceful and amazing and devastating and painful and sorrowful. And, and I just, I, I have to be honest about that. If, sure. <laughs> if there's one thing I'm going to be with the rest of my life, it's, it's straight up honest. You know, I, I yeah. refuse to sugarcoat things. I refuse to pretend anything anymore. And so I'm, I'm just really grateful for the opportunity. I have to walk with people who are 
kind of trying to figure this all out. You know, it's a, it's a, I feel very called to that and very excited about it. Great. That's beautiful. Where do people find you if they want to learn more about you or connect with you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, um, on all the social media, uh, I'm at Matt Nightingale and you can find my website, mattnightingale.com. And that'll, that, that's got links to the Ted talk, to sermons I've preached, podcast episodes. Um, my blog is there and then all of the different organizations that I'm a part of. And if anyone wants to, uh, reach out for, to work with me or anything, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I, I often say, this is probably stupid of me financially, but <laughs> I always say, even if people choose not to work with me professionally, I'm, I'm always happy to be a friend for the journey and a resource. You know, I, I'm here and I'm, I'm really accessible. Mm. Beautiful. I, you know, what I, what I hope people hear in this is the challenge of doing the inner work to live your best life. And Matt, thank you so much for sharing your story and all of the ways that your inner work has brought you to this cusp mm. of who you are right now. Mm -hmm. um, I really hope folks resonate with the inner work and um, work themselves to, to do the inner work, to do the outer work. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really um, privileged to be here. Well, friends, we will see you again next week. Um, we're excited to continue to have this journey with you and to talk about the ways that we all should be getting our hands dirty in the work. Um, as we've illustrated today, it doesn't always look like boots in the streets. It doesn't always look like, um, you know, being um, someone who is screaming from the rafters. Oftentimes it means looking at who you are and, and where you intend to go and and knowing that the work that you're doing on yourself is as important as any other work that you're doing in the world. And so yes. um, as Robin and I um, say goodbye, a quick reminder, you can follow us on all of our social media channels at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. And until next week, we will see you then. Let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to Activist Theology dot kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>